If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning as we do each week. And we trust once again that you are here with us where two or three have gathered in your name. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I will never forget hearing a presentation on this gospel text from Matthew chapter 18 during a spring conference retreat that I attended with my chapter of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in college. Uh, My wife, Aya, was there too. You can ask her. The speaker spoke for a while about this text, about going to your brother or sister who has sinned against you, and then said, okay, it's time for a break. Now, during the break, if there is a person in this fellowship who has sinned against you, go to them and be reconciled. Uh, What? You have never seen a group of college kids sitting in as much stunned silence as we were that afternoon. You want us to do what? So the break begins and we cautiously filed out of the dining hall or wherever it was we had been listening to the talk and tentatively looked around at each other, terrified that we would see someone walking in our direction. Had we sinned against someone and didn't remember it? Did we think we were friends with someone only to find out that, we, that they had been harboring some secret wounding for years? It was like being thrust all of a sudden into a psychological thriller, some kind of horribly personal Alfred Hitchcock movie. But praise God, we were all equally terrified. So I'm pretty sure no one was reconciled to anyone that afternoon. And I think that that terror is pretty universal. Every single person in my inner varsity chapter felt it. And I expect many of us here, if not all of us, would have felt the same, not only back in college, but even now. I could almost see it in your eyes as I just read the reading. Go up to a brother or sister who has sinned against you and be reconciled. I mean, goodness. And of course, The thing that made us all feel so afraid was only the very first step in the process that Jesus lays out for discipline in the church. But that fear that we so naturally feel has dire consequences. Did you hear the awful thing that I said? I said that my friends and I were so scared that no one was reconciled. And then I said, praise God. That's bad news. That's no good. We are to praise God when we are reconciled. We need to be reconciled. We need the chance for forgiveness and a welcome home. There must be a way to interact with this passage without fear. Now, as you might imagine, this is a text that I have traditionally felt hesitant to preach. This may, in fact, be my very first church discipline sermon. After all, I want to be about preaching the good news week by week. The motto of our church is announcing Christ's 
finished work to a worn out world, for goodness sake. Where does church discipline fit into that? Won't this just wear us out more? I think, though, that if we are careful in our interpretation, we can find good news even in a passage like this, which details how to deal with an unrepentant sinner, even to the point of separating them from the worshiping community. Now, Christians have been trying with varying degrees of success to follow Jesus's model ever since he instituted it. You heard it read and you've probably heard it before. If someone sins against you, go to them in private. The hope, of course, is that repentance, reconciliation, and restoration happen right then. And often, I think, in Christian people's relationships, it does. Church discipline never actually has to get involved. Christians go to each other And because they know how much they themselves have already been forgiven by God, are able to forgive too. We love, John said, because he first loved us. That translates to we forgive because he first forgave us. And I think this is the first piece of good news that we can take out of this Scripture, it should serve to remind us that all of this potential reconciliation is possible because of our prior forgiveness. Christ's accomplishment on the cross, his finished work, is what makes any of this possible. But it's easy to forget, isn't it? The only reason we would ever be hesitant, and we are hesitant, To confess our sin to our brother or sister in Christ is for fear that we won't be forgiven. And is there any less forgiving place than America in the year 2020 or really anywhere in the year 2020? We, Christian and non-Christian alike, have learned from observing the culture that if we make a mistake or indeed sin from the heart, either by commission or omission, We have learned that there is no forgiveness. We've seen sins from 20 and 30 years ago dug up to ruin people's lives. Attempts at confession are met not with absolution, but with sneers and laughter and cancellation. That's a kind of discipline that is not good news. Jesus' way, and we'll get to it more deeply here in a second. Jesus' plan can be good news because of the good news, capital G, capital N, that it is founded on. The forgiveness of our sins through the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is a forgiveness that can happen in a Christian relationship that could never happen in a non-Christian world. For instance, on the internet. When's the last time you saw someone admit they were wrong, that is, confess a sin, ask for forgiveness, and then actually receive it on social media? It's never happened. It's impossible. Because forgiveness is only possible in relationship for us in the church when the two people involved both know that they themselves are broken sinners. 
saved by grace and Jesus Christ. The good news fuels reconciliation. But, but what happens when a brother or sister cannot hear you and refuses to repent? Well, that's when church discipline gets involved. After Jesus suggests that we go to the person alone, he outlines a process. First, by which we do the same, we go to the person in private, but bring some witnesses with us. And if that doesn't work, we take the matter to the church. And then if we still don't have repentance and reconciliation, we are, quote, to treat that one like a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, there's an awful lot that could be talked about here. And I remain committed to getting to the good news, capital G, capital N, of this passage. This is going to be a sermon, a proclamation of the good news, not just a lecture on church discipline. So what I want to do this morning is, I think, two things. First, I want to talk about why the church disciplines, and then what the good news about all of this is, why it's good that the church disciplines itself, and why that can be good news. Okay, so why does the church engage in this practice? It seems so cold, right? Anything that might potentially end with a person being removed from membership in the body seems antithetical to what we're supposed to be all about, doesn't it? Where is the grace here? Well, we'll get there. But I think we can agree that it's not readily apparent, right? It's not right there on the surface. Discipline certainly has a terrible reputation. It conjures images of children turned over their parents' knees and nuns wielding rulers. And it is true that discipline, exercised by sinful humans, carries with it a tinge of their sin. It feels unloving because it often is unloving. It has a bad rap because it's carried out by bad people. But this obscures a great truth about the kind of discipline that Jesus is talking about here. Discipline here is good because God is good. Even more, discipline is required because God is good. If God wasn't good, sure, we could do whatever we want. We could do whatever we want and die. But God is Good. And that's where we have to start. God is good. That's where we have to start. There's no other starting place. That is our governing assumption for this whole thing. This is all here because God is good. Perfectly good. Holiness good. This is all possible because of that goodness of God. Of course, God being good is a problem in the short term for us sinners. That's why discipline never feels good. That's why it's so hard, and that's why human discipline is so often corrupted by sin. But in the long term, a good God is, of course, exactly what we need. A good God is what we are desperate for. A good God is a God who can and will save. So, 
Let's start talking about the why of church discipline with the most obvious reason we do this. Jesus tells us to. This is a simple matter of obedience. We, we strive, for instance, to order our personal internal lives in the way that Jesus calls us to. And we strive to order our interpersonal and familial lives in the way that Jesus calls us to. And so therefore, of course, we should strive to order our church life in the way that Jesus calls us to. As in those other realms, we won't do it perfectly, but we will strive for it. We seek obedience and ask the Lord to help us, knowing that he redeems us every day, every hour. The church disciplines itself because Jesus calls us to. The second reason that the church is careful to discipline itself actually has the good news baked right into it. The church disciplines itself to protect its own witness. We, we exist, this church and the church exists to make an announcement to the world. Jesus has come. You, you world, are a great sinner. On your own, death is your certain destination. But you have a Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Accept his righteousness given for you, for your very own, and live a new life. This announcement is almost impossible for the world to hear. And if we're not announcing it properly, or truthfully, or confusedly, Forget it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about our calling. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are salt. We are light. We should be a city on a hill. And if we're losing our saltiness or being hidden under a basket, something needs to be done. The world needs us too badly There's too much bad news out there. And to cut through, we have to be clear. You've heard groups or people or political parties who say this and say that and say the other thing all at the same time. Well, what happens? You stop listening to them altogether. For us to be heard this incredibly counterintuitive announcement, our proclamation must be disciplined. In other words, the church disciplines itself in order to proclaim the good news. It's all in service of the gospel. This is actually where the gospel announcements of this passage begin to come clear. First, remember what we said at the beginning, our organizing principle, our governing assumption, God is good. We know that God is good. We know 
that in him we have been raised to new life. And once we are living that new life, a miracle happens. We can hear the truth without its condemnation and hear it as it really is. A beautiful description of the attributes of a holy God. St. Paul says in Romans that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's you. You're in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for you. So when a brother or sister comes to you, or when the church comes to you with what you might otherwise experience as painful discipline, you can see it as a reminder of the righteousness, holiness, and glory of Almighty God. We can see it as a reminder of just how good God is. Now, it still won't feel good. We are still human people. No one likes to be shown their sin. But remember this, that same goodness, that same holiness that shows us our sin, that righteousness, that glory is what Jesus gave up as he hung on the cross for you. A righteous and glorious God who then gives up that righteousness and glory for you is a very good God indeed. And this is very good news indeed. Here's another piece of good news for you. We're already doing this. You're already being disciplined. Are you surprised to hear that? We are disciplined, each one of us, every single week. When we come here, we hear the word of God read and preached. We confess our shortcomings and hear absolution in Christ's name. That's church discipline. We come before a holy God and are reminded of our unholiness. We confess, are forgiven, reaffirm our faith in the words of the creed, and then eat and drink Christ's body and blood, reconciling ourselves again to the God who made us, And who saves us. In fact, it's basically only the people who refuse to do those things who need to experience some further discipline. Most church discipline is as simple as come to church. Listen to the words. Believe again. And finally, there is good news even in that seemingly terrible last bit about treating the unrepentant brother and sister like a Gentile or tax collector. Yes, it says that we should treat the unrepentant person as though they are not one of us. They are outside the bounds of the worshiping community. But what does that mean? Well, how do we treat people who are not part of this worshiping community? Do we treat them with scorn or contempt? Of course not. We preach the gospel to them. Gentiles and tax collectors, those are the people to whom we are sent. The people for whom Jesus came. They are the ones ripe for conversion. Treat them like a Gentile and tax collector 
is another way of saying, love them, preach to them, work unceasingly to welcome them home. So it turns out that church discipline is actually all about the gospel. The church disciplines itself because of the gospel to enable the proclamation of the gospel. And when confronted with somebody outside the bounds of the community, proclaims the gospel to them. And that's where we find ourselves. Preaching the gospel unrelentingly to people within the church and preaching the gospel unrelentingly to people outside it, proclaiming Christ's finished work to a worn-out world. Listen, the church is not made and kept holy by discipline. The church is made and kept holy by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Reminding us through the proclamation of the gospel, his finished work for us. So let us now once again be disciplined by the word of God. Acknowledge that you are a desperate sinner. Call out to Christ and accept his completed saving work for you. And now reaffirm with us your faith through the words of the Nicene Creed, thanking God for reconciling himself to you in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to him today and forever. Amen.